0: Hello, and welcome to the Poisons and Pestilence podcast, episode 3, I don't love you, hellebore. In the first couple of episodes, we focused on the history of biological and chemical warfare before the year 1000 BC. This then covered the vast period of human history. We discovered that poison arrow use goes back a long way indeed, and that humans have, at the very least, imagined how they could use disease against their enemies for as long as we've been writing stuff down. In this episode, we cover a thousand-year window of human history from approximately 1000 BC to 1 AD, with the aim of understanding what practices there might have been which we would recognise as chemical and biological warfare today. In the first part of the show, we are going to do a broad sweep of the evidence that chemical and biological warfare was practised during this period. This covers all manner of cultural artefact, from guides on military strategy to mythological stories. After this brief survey, we then dig down into an incident which is commonly referred to as the first recorded case of chemical warfare in the academic literature, and more importantly, on Wikipedia. This incident is the Siege of Kara, which is thought to have taken place in ancient Greece, just outside of Delphi at around 590 BC. During this siege, we are told, the military forces of a group of local city-states place vast amounts of the poisonous plant Heliborh. Into the besieged city's water supply, ultimately resulting in the destruction of the city. In this episode, we are going to play detective and look at the evidence which underpins this claim. Now, full disclosure, I feel about as comfortable and at home making inferences from ancient texts as I would be corralling scorpions into clay hand grenades, so my discussion here is reliant on a number of different studies in this area. As ever, I encourage you to check out the show notes, if that's your bag. I hope you enjoy the show today. At the point in history in which we cover today, human societies were in a drawn-out period of transition, with ever-larger systems of social order emerging. This is the period in which city-states proliferated, something which was associated with profound shifts in agriculture, trade and warfare. This included, generally speaking, the emergence of specialised military units, including, for example, the hoplite soldier of ancient Greece, with their round shields, distinctive helmets, formation tactics, and, love, a watery-tasting beer. Hoplite? Forget it. You're just bitter. It was also a period in which economic transformations came alongside the emergence of ever-larger standing armies, as well as mercenaries, with distinctive military strategies and ethos. Other innovations included the adoption of more intricate melee weapons and armour. Innovations in horseback riding and chariots also led to the emergence of the original shock troops. Now, there are a few things of which we can be sure in this era that are of relevance to sketching out the possibility and character of poison and pathogen warfare. The first thing to note is that there appears to be little evidence of the use of infectious pathogenic organisms. It might be there. It might have happened within other societies, but there is not a real case made for it at the moment, beyond the type of circumstantial evidence of cultural appreciation of the potential of disease as a weapon of warfare discussed in the last episode. However, this claim does come with two mahoosive caveats. First, the links between the upheaval and deprivations of war and disease outbreaks are something which is going to merit further attention in this series. It is perhaps telling, but certainly at least a useful abuse of interpretation here, to point out that in the polytheistic belief systems of Mesopotamia and Egypt, it was the same god that dealt with both war and disease. And indeed, this ancient link can also be traced through into more recent religious systems. Second, if we are happy to take a broader definition of biological warfare than has been implicit in the show so far, the basic idea of delivering a disease to an enemy, taking it to them as it were, via a round delivery system or otherwise, we could also include what might be better termed environmental warfare, which is essentially pushing people into environments where disease is inevitable. This then points to an even broader history which we need to explore. Humans have always used the landscape to their advantage in warfare, As societies became increasingly reliant on agriculture, crops and water supplies became an obvious target during siege warfare, and disease came part and parcel with the deprivation that this caused. In campaign warfare more generally, it is also clear that military leaders would corral enemies into inhospitable regions, including areas where disease was rife. This could do more damage than steel and stone to health and morale. This dead is something we will likely come back to in future episodes. So for now, I appear to have dodged the biological bullet for this era. But what about chemical warfare? Well, let's start with some of the circumstantial evidence related to poison warfare in antiquity. I guess the first thing to note is that the use of poisons in warfare, if it did happen, seems to have been a very marginal and unusual thing indeed. It barely features in many historical studies on war and military strategy in this era at all. This includes the ancient Greeks, which have been very well studied for a very long time. In saying this, while many city-state civilizations had long given up a reliance on poison arrow hunting in favour of more grain and tax-heavy lifestyles, stories certainly die hard in their myths. In Greek mythology, you can't move for poison arrows, poison spears and yes, even the occasional poison sacrificial bull. In the latter case, there is a myth set at the beginning of this time period in which a priestess duped the Ionians into eating a poisoned bull before a battle. It also seems that stories from frontiers filtered back to the metropolis, with several peoples apparently continuing to employ such weapons in warfare. Much, it seems, to the chagrin of chroniclers and theologians in this period. It has been suggested, for example, that the Scythians, who were a nomadic steppe people living in what is today Kazakhstan as well as the Gauls of Northern Europe, both used such weapons according to ancient Greece and Roman sources. But I can't find a substantive review of the archaeological record. In India too, poison arrows are referred to in at least one contemporary military strategy document, and are also given a bad rap in the ancient Hindu laws of Manu, which is a sacred text which comes from this period. Indeed, this is commonly cited as the earliest written prohibition of poison projectiles. Ancient societies were of course also no strangers to more discreet forms of poisoning. Such knowledge was intricately linked with the use of medicinal plants and the treatment of venomous insects and animal stings and bites. Poisoning is prevalent in the mythologies of this era across time and place. This period even gave rise to the so-called poison king, Mithridates. Mithridates was born in the 2nd century BC in northeastern Turkey. He ruled a small empire and spent most of his life fighting the Romans. He had many enemies, and was particularly worried about the prospect of being poisoned, something which is unsurprising considering his family history. This was a fear which drove him to investigate poisons and antidotes to the extent that he is referred to by some as the first toxicologist in history. The knowledge we have about the Poison King is thanks in no small part to the fact that his archives were taken to Rome and translated into Latin after his death. I am yet to read upon this guy properly, who is covered in another book by the way by Adrian Mayer, but it is fair to say, at the very least, that he had some rather odd interests. But alas for now, we have to leave him to his tinkering with universal antidotes, metallic poison testing cups, and his preoccupations with hemlock munching ducks and mad honey, as we turn to a key landmark in the history of chemical warfare, the fall of the ancient Greek city of Kira, which is commonly referred to as the first incident of chemical warfare in recorded history. In the rest of the show, we are going to try and find out how sure we can be if it actually happened. Spoiler alert, it's complicated. And having spent a few too many evenings looking at this, I am certainly interested to hear what your views on this story are. So, this story centres on a place called Delphi in ancient Greece, whose ruins you can still visit today. A curiosity of the ancient Greek city-state system was a number of sanctuary cities, which acted as religious, cultural and business centres. These places had wealthy benefactors, and their broader cultural and political significance helped ensure that they were protected from the infighting between city-states as well as foreign incursion. Now, ancient Delphi lies about 8 miles or 13 kilometres inland, and back in the day many people would arrive by boat at the nearest port, and walk an ancient pilgrimage route to the city. Now, as it happened, the nearest port was a very old city called Caria, which appears to have benefited significantly from the footfall. Indeed, the good citizens of Caria may have been a little too eager to benefit from the pilgrims and the Delphi Sanctuary, which is where the trouble starts. At some point around 590 BC, relations between the city of Delphi, or at least its backers, and Caria turned sour, and what starts as a bit of a border dispute turns into a war, which, depending on who you read, lasted between 1 and 10 years. It is also allegedly something which resulted in the destruction of the city, which was then rebuilt, either pretty much straight afterwards or centuries later, again depending on who you read. Now, I've actually not found any reference to archaeological evidence for the destruction of the city. That doesn't mean it's not out there, of course, but it does raise a question. Instead, the main evidence provided in the literature comes from the rather more flimsy claim that we know the destruction happened because it was the sacking of this city which paid for Delphi to establish the Pythic Games. There may be better evidence out there, but I have struggled to find it. Now, this provincial conflict of questionable veracity, which occurred well over two millennia ago, would likely have been but a footnote to a footnote in the history of warfare. But thanks to the allegation of chemical warfare in this siege, this ancient siege has maintained its much-coveted position on page 1 of most potted reviews of the history of chemical warfare. There are several variants of the story, each essentially focus on the use of a poisonous plant, usually identified as Hellebore, to poison the water supply of a city. It is not surprising that Hellebore features in this story. It was well known throughout this part of the world for its medical uses as a purgative, as well as its lethal effects at higher doses. This we know today is due to the presence of highly toxic alkaloids in the plant. The tale is not a happy one, no matter how it is told. In each case, the city is sacked and the majority of inhabitants are killed, shipped off into slavery, and a few souls survive and escape into the surrounding mountains before being mopped up later. Niche, as this subject is, there have only been a handful of studies that have looked at the broader conflict that this incident is allegedly part of, and indeed, among these scholars, there is disagreement if the conflict, commonly referred to as the First Sacred War, ever even happened. While the most recent analysis by a respected historian suggests the First Sacred War is not entirely made up, it is clear that we are dealing in accounts which are produced centuries after the fact. One version of the story is written around 600 years after the event, in the 1st century AD. In this case, the poisoning was attributed to Klesenes of Sion, the commander of the siege who allegedly cut the water pipes leading to the town and then turned them on again a few days later after adding Hellebore to the pipes. In another source, which comes from a hundred years later or so after this, in the 2nd century AD, a different general advises the Allies to gather a great quantity of Hellebore from a nearby city and mix it with water, something which it is claimed helped the attackers overcome the city. This is accompanied by a further source from the same century, around 150 AD, which suggests the watercourse to Curar was diverted and the Kira population was forced to rely on rainwater and wells. The river was then poisoned with hellebore and redirected back to the city, with foreseeable consequences. The fourth source, of dubious origins, has been dated by some to be almost contemporaneous with the event by ancient historical standards coming only a hundred years or so after the event is claimed to have taken place. The source is a political speech attributed to the famous medical practitioner Thessalus, which it's claimed was given around 450 to 500 BC. So far so good. The problem is that scholars have felt that something is not quite right with this attribution for decades. The style is wrong and it feels like it comes from a different writer in a much later era. Indeed, recent scholarship argues quite convincingly that this text is in fact wrongly ascribed to Thessalus and that a later production date is much more likely. As a consequence this story is no more reliable than the others discussed so far. However this version of the story still dies hard thanks in no small part to the fact that the story in this version implicates the Hippocratic family. Hippocrates, of course, is famous today as being the first person to codify the first do no harm principle in medical ethics. And in this variant of the story, it is one of his ancestors, Nebros, who is charged with committing the crime, and one of his sons, Thessalus, who is retelling the story. It is no surprise, then, that for a while at least, this appeared to be a compelling piece of evidence that the incident in Carra happened. However, as fresh light has been thrown on the character of this evidence, we perhaps can be justified in being more sceptical. I think this throws cold water on the whole story, but while we're here, let's also consider if it was even practically feasible. Well, the first point to note is that the technique described sounds unlikely to have been especially effective. I've had a scan of the toxicological literature, thanks Google, and have not found an example of Hellebore ever causing death to humans or livestock through contamination of still or moving water. It is also clear that the required volumes of the plant in its natural form are not insignificant, and appear more likely to block and back up a water supply rather than poison it. Such a secondary effect of course would have been helpful to the attackers, but obviously this could have been achieved without seeing dozens of soldiers out flower collecting. So, if we are to believe that Hellebore was used, it is only really feasible some form of prepared extract was involved. Now, at this point, I, we can all agree that things are getting a little bit silly. I mean, this appears to be a bonkers way of achieving an effect which could have been much more easily achieved by cutting off the water supply. However, in the spirit of giving this tale a fair outing, I thought I would entertain the idea for a little longer. We know that hellebore did grow in nearby areas that Greek Arby's would have had access to. They could have found a glut of the stuff and picked it, but this does seem a lot of work. I just don't buy it. However, one other last hope for this scenario can perhaps be found in the medicinal use and trade in Hellebore. In the sources of, on this tale, a city just along the coast from Karar is referred to as a source of the Hellebore. This makes little more sense. Could soldiers have bought up local supplies of the plant or liquid extract from traders? Maybe. But at this point, we are deep in conspiratorial territory. So, in summary, dear listener, Kira existed in this period. However, we're not certain it was destroyed around the period of the incident, or indeed, if the conflict in which this incident was part of actually happened. We are short of reliable sources written any sooner than 300 years after the event. No version of the story told from the perspective of the victims appears to have ever existed, and what sources we do have are sketchy. Further to this, the technical feasibility of the use of poison seems questionable, and, even if it was feasible, alternative strategies, such as cutting off the water supply, seem like they would have created the desired effect for the attackers, with much less time spent picking flowers. And so, next time you see this incident referred to, perhaps you can feel a little bit smug. And maybe boy your friends about the first use of chemical weapons that wasn't. And so that's it for this week. I will see you next time in the journey into the antisocial history of biological and chemical warfare.